0: Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lifcott-Hames, and last week we received some cool news via Twitter from a high school student who goes by the handle Drew DrewShaw1234. Drew wrote, Thank you for helping me get into college. Such a good podcast. <laughs> Congratulations, Drew. We can't take all the credit. The credit is due to you, but we're happy for you, and we can't wait to get more details. Well, On today's episode, getting in experts Steve Lemenege and Park Muth are here to answer more of your questions. We're going to get started with this voicemail from a college counselor in Boston.
1: My name is Mike Lawler, and I'm calling from Boston, Massachusetts. First off, I want to thank you and all the panelists and students for putting together this excellent podcast. After teaching for five years, I'm in my first year as Associate Director of College Counseling at St. Sebastian School in Newton, Mass. And I have to say, I've found your podcast incredibly helpful, and I've uh, recommended it to students, colleagues, and parents. Anyway... Here's my question. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to present to the junior class at St. Sebastian's about how they can use technology to help them during the college process. Uh, so far, I have planned to discuss Khan Academy, Naviance, uh, and exploring colleges through social media. Are there any other websites or apps that you recommend? Thanks. Thanks
0: for the call, Mike. Steve, do you have suggestions for Mike?
1: Well, I think he, he's landed on, on a couple of great ones, Khan Academy, Naviance, Naviance. Um, I know the College Board has a great website with uh, with good information, and that's that's a good resource. Is that called
0: Big Future?
1: That's right, Big Future. There's also the U.S. Department of Education has a pretty cool website, College Navigator, where you can find out almost anything about uh, about the various colleges around the country. And I think there's no substitute for surfing the web pages of individual colleges. In addition to social media, which I think is also a great way. Uh, a couple of others that I would Throw out there that Mike might want to include in his presentation would be an organization called Capex, C-A-P-P-E-X. There's one called College Results Online, which is very interesting, and uh, College Insight is another. So those those are some that I would throw out there to take a look at, and th- those are great resources just to find out um, what what students think of the colleges where they're attending. Um, what the colleges are looking for, uh, some statistics about competitiveness and selectivity and what you can study at those places. So th- I would throw those out there as other resources that he might want to consider.
0: I'll put in a plug for one of my favorite little nonprofits, Colleges That Change Lives, ctcl.org. This is a collection of 40 small colleges, most of which you haven't heard, but uniformly the alumni say, this place changed my life. Check that out if you're willing to stray beyond the list from U.S. News and others that seem to prescribe the best colleges. There's certainly Many amazing colleges on that Colleges That Change Lives list. Just a way to widen your blinders, be willing to consider campuses you might not even have heard of before. But I'll bet there are also great resources out there, perhaps less well known, that our listeners are aware of. So I'm going to ask listeners want to get your wisdom on this, please tweet us, email us, send us a voice memo with your recommendation about a great resource or two that you've found that can really help kids who are just starting to explore colleges, can help kids um, gather information, get a sense of the place and the possibilities. What online tools have you liked and used in the early stages of this process? Please let us know. And here's a question we got from Cynthia Anderson in Switzerland.
2: Your podcast is amazing, a positive and reassuring resource for anxious students and parents. We live in Switzerland, and my son, a senior in an IB diploma school, applied to 10 universities in the U.S. His school is now preparing to send the mid-year school report. My question is twofold. Is there an IB score for U.S. universities or a reference point that IB students might use to convert their scores to a U.S. GPA? And do you believe that U.S. universities might move toward IB score ranges as the IB diploma program becomes more widely available? Thanks, Cynthia. Steve, what do you think?
1: For many colleges, the, the IB is so well respected and they understand the the system of, of international baccalaureate very well. And I think there should be more of a recognition on the college's websites about what the expectations are, because the expectations for U.S. Uh, credentials are really quite clear. So I, I agree with Cynthia on, on that point, and I think the colleges could do a better job of that. Back to to IB. IB is grades students um, with a maximum of seven on six different courses. So you, the most you can get if you add all of those up is 42 points, if I'm doing my math right. Uh, and then the max you can get for the overall diploma is 45, because you get extra points for an, um, an extended essay, etc. So there aren't ranges where you can say oh for this college you need to have this particular ib diploma number what a lot of colleges will do is they will recalculate a gpa with an ib student based on sixes and sevens counting as an a with seven is really a plus but six would be an a or an a minus and then five would be a b and four a c and down the line that's an approximation it's not as as accurate as you'd like it to be because it's not a U.S. system. It's not A, B, C, D, but it's it's better than nothing. And I think even though it is apples and oranges, different curricula, that's how most U.S. colleges would, would handle that, is to give the highest two levels of grades for IB, sixes and sevens, would, would give them an A and then use that in the recalculation of a GPA.
0: Great, Steve. Thanks so much for that and for joining me today. It's been lovely having you on the podcast.
1: It's always fun, Julie. Thank you so much.
0: All right, Park, we've got another question
1: here from a college counselor. This
0: one is from Diana Rogers in Pittsburgh.
2: Traditionally, I serve middle-income students who will qualify for some but not full financial aid. In the past two years, however, a significant portion of my students have come from very affluent families with a lot of social capital. Frequently, their parents have told me that the students have connections at highly selective schools. I'm not talking about being a legacy, however each school defines that term, but connections along the lines of dad's golf partner says he can get two kids a year into UVA, or our next-door neighbor's son is a state senator and went to Georgetown, so we can get him to write a letter on behalf of our son. In my experience, most of these quote-unquote connections don't pan out. What guidelines do your college counselors give to students and their families about when and how to appropriately use those quote-unquote connections to help college admission chances at highly selective schools? Love the podcast. It's been great for my kids to hear about other kids going through the process.
0: Thanks, Diana. We appreciate having you as a listener. Park, what do you think about her
3: question? Well, it's a question that has come up a lot this past year because there has been a case ongoing in Texas with Freedom of Information Act releases of emails from VIP types contacting the president of the university or contacting the admission office saying, here's a great kid. Now, if you've actually read through those emails, and I haven't read through all of them, but I've certainly looked at some of them. Most of them are, here's a really good kid. I hope you'll take a close look at them. Is that going to make a substantial difference in an admission decision? More often than not, it just isn't. Now, am I saying never use your connections? Absolutely not. Someone knows you well and they happen to be connected to a school And they can write in specific detail. You know, they've known you since you were five years old and you're best friends with their son or daughter, and they've grown up together and done all these activities. And they can talk about you as a person, as a student, about your character. Just like any other recommendation, it can be a factor that will come into play in an admission decision. But I would be very wary of people that can say, well, I have a friend who's got two spots here, or, you know, I have a powerful... Person, whether in business or politics, who can open doors. Certainly, these people write letters for students. There's no doubt about it. But if you actually look at the number of decisions that turn up after they've written letters for a number of students, it, it's not going to be an inordinate amount of them are going to have a specific effect unless they're writing about how wonderful they are. And then like any recommendation, it will be looked at in that context.
0: Yeah, a letter of recommendation ultimately comes down to what does it say about that kid, their motivation, their intellectual vitality, their character. And time and time again, I confront this in my own community, people saying, well, we know so-and-so, should we have them write a letter? And I completely agree with you, Park, unless that so-and-so knows that kid, there's really very little utility in it. And I i don't know, I, I guess it doesn't ever hurt them. But I imagine if I was an admissions uh, officer or dean and I got too many of those, I would get a little annoyed. Like, do you actually think I could be bought? Um, you know, that's really not what we're doing here. We're running a college or a university. And ultimately, it's about this kid, not who their parents might know. Of course, I'm sure there are people who know people who have been the exception to that rule. But I think, you know, as our listener has said, and as you have said, Park, you know, in the main, these things don't pan out the way the person might expect them to. And and that's because admission is ultimately about who is this applicant? What are they capable of? What will they add to our campus? What can they do? Who will they be? How will they treat others? You know, will they thrive? And our last question is from Becky Austin, a mom in Oakland whose children attend a large public high school. Becky volunteers on the school's college committee.
2: A number of our students are applying to private colleges, some of them to very selective schools. Given that there is no one to pick up the phone and advocate for a given student, as I am aware may happen at more resourced public schools and private schools, how can a student connect with a school that he or she really wants to attend? What would be some effective, positive ways to self-advocate? I worry that our students and students like them across the country who don't have a connection or an advocate or, frankly, much, if any, advising on the application itself have a lower chance of admission as a result.
0: You know, here's where the concept of context really comes into play. I know my admissions colleagues uh, at Stanford and others I've met from other schools have really drummed that concept into my brain, which is they evaluate kids Uh, based on the context uh, in which they've grown up and the educational context of their high school, which means if the kid comes from a high school where people don't pick up the phone and call colleges to advocate for them. They know that. They, they understand the absence of that and what it means. So my sense here is that, no, they don't have a lower chance of admission as a result. But Park, what, what do you think? is If the college office at her kid's high school isn't picking up the phone and creating relationships with admissions officers, are they at a disadvantage? And what can those kids themselves do?
3: In part, it depends. I think one of the best books written about the admission process, it's now old, but it's still quite useful, and it's called The Gatekeepers, written by Jacques Steinberg, who originally was writing that for The New York Times, The Choice Blogs. And he followed students through the process, and it focused mainly on Wesleyan and on one admission officer. Ralph Figueroa, the guy that is sort of the hero of the book, he does have, it's clear, a relationship with the Harvard-Westlake School in Los Angeles, and their counselor advocates for students, and it's clear in the book that that does have an effect. Now, here we have a student that doesn't have that. Does that mean they're in trouble? Well, it depends where they live, but... Schools are traveling all over the country now and many of them host programs at a school or a hotel or some general place where they invite parents and students to come in and hear about their schools or they may come into their high school and do a particular visit in either case regionally you have an opportunity to meet an admission officer and that's a chance to get their business card and If you have questions, you may be able to develop a relationship with that person. One of the things I advise students to do if they really do have an interest in a school is to spend some time and find out about faculty. And if they have a particular area of interest, they may find a faculty member who is teaching a course in an area they have a particular passion about or a talent in or experience with. And maybe reach out to them with a question. And if they respond, then... Now you have someone on that campus that you can say, if a school asks, why are you interested in us? And you can say, well, in my emails with Professor so-and-so, I found out more about research opportunities. And then you've demonstrated an active interest on your own. You've demonstrated your ability to reach out on your own. Those actually, those are skills that transcend a college counselor saying you're a good student to an admission officer, you've actually done all that yourself.
0: So what about the kid, though, who's not doing research and who's at a high school? The staff ratio, staff-student ratio for college counseling isn't such that they've got the time and the wherewithal to pick up the phone and try to create relationships uh, with admissions officers where they can't tap into that prior relationship as a way to leverage an applicant's chances. What would you say to that kid? They don't have the chance to attend a presentation by the college because the college isn't coming anywhere near close. What can a kid do from their own desktop, um, if anything, or is the application enough?
3: Well, it partly depends on the selectivity of the school because many schools are primarily numbers-driven, and that's probably true for 85% of the schools anyway. At the same time, someone who's sitting in their desk, they can reach out to schools. Many times the schools list who is in charge of a region. So even if they don't come to visit, you still have a name. So the students who want to do a little searching or they can even call and say, is there a particular person that I could talk to who is in charge of my region and I have some questions? So I don't think they have to feel that they don't have any chance to do some outreach if they if they do a little homework on their end.
0: Okay. And that kind of outreach is appropriate as opposed to being seen as uh, being a pest. Um, I suppose you're going to say it depends.
3: It is going to depend because if a student asks a question that's readily available on the website, that's not going to help. And in fact, that could be perceived as they're just trying to get their name across. But if they've actually done a little substantive investigation and come up with a significant question that they have about activities or interests that they have, then that's a viable question that they want an answer to, and that that shows their thinking.
0: Okay. So I think I'm going to draw a conclusion here for listeners, which is that most students don't attend high school's where guidance counselors have strong relationships with colleges. If that's you and you're listening, sit tight, don't freak out. You're going to put together a fantastic application. If you've got questions that aren't answered on the website, contact the school. As Park has said, contact the people in admissions, ask your questions, attend a presentation if they come to your region, but don't wig out over the fact that somehow these other kids have a leg up over you. As I said at the outset, they do evaluate you within the context of your own community, your own school. And I know from having been a kid who applied from a school in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, they're excited when they get an application from a school where they don't have relationships. Like, wow, we just heard from a kid at such and such place. That's actually um, a fun thing for admissions officers, too, because they want to know that their reach is expanding and that kids from plenty of other schools than they they might have close relationships with know about them and are interested in attending their school. Park, thanks so much for joining me today.
3: Thanks so much for having me on, and I hope people will listen to this and, and learn from it.
0: Listeners, we love hearing from you. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at gettinginpod. That's all one word, gettinginpod. Please keep sending your voice memos and emails too. Our email address is gettingin@slate.com. And there's always our trusty hotline where you can leave a voicemail. That number is 929-999-4353. And if you can, please leave us a comment on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julie Lifcott-Hames. And remember, it's not just about getting in. It's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, like iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book to try out from Audible is The Opposite of Spoiled, raising kids who are grounded, generous, and smart about money. Author Ron Lieber is the New York Times money columnist, and he covers the basics from how to handle the tooth fairy to college tuition. But he also identifies a set of traits— Traits like modesty, patience, generosity, and perspective that parents hope their teenagers will carry with them out into the world. If you want to listen to the opposite of spoiled or many other books, Audible has it. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com college.